This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Nina Kopel. Stories are emerging about the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, and Facebook is being accused of facilitating the spread of hate speech in the country. Plus the question that hijacked cricketer Steve Smith's press conference. And the Nine Network has lost their Commonwealth Games accreditation. But is this system irrelevant to begin with? Joining me in the studio is Max Chalmers, freelance journalist working with Crikey and the ABC. Hi, Max. Hi, Nina. Benedict Brook, national reporter from news.com.au. Hi. Hello, Nina. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Margaret Simons, Associate Professor in Journalism at Monash University and award-winning journalist. Hi, Margaret. Hi. The indiscriminate and violent ethnic cleansing of Rohingya people in Myanmar has been described as a genocide. According to the UNHCR, more than 600,000 Rohingya refugees have fled violence in Myanmar since last August, and there are nearly 900,000 Rohingya people currently seeking refuge in Bangladesh. The United Nations say the situation appears to be textbook definition ethnic cleansing. But what does this have to do with the media? To help me break down this story, I spoke with Libby Hogan, a multimedia journalist based in Yangon, Myanmar. She works for the Democratic Voice of Burma and has been covering the story from the ground. So last year, after the Rohingya crisis really spiked in August and we saw over 600,000 Rohingya refugees flee to Bangladesh, what was also really confronting here was looking at the hate speech and fake news online. I myself um, experienced a lot of trolls on both Twitter and Facebook. But on Facebook, what was really interesting was not only was there fake accounts such as um, the Rohingya were burning down their own houses, um, also reports such as uh, different Muslim militants are coming to blow up the most sacred uh, Buddhist sculptures and Buddhist buildings in Myanmar, what was more confronting was also that there was no public condemnation of any of these posts or any of these quite vicious attacks. So I started following this myself just curiously from about August, but it was really hard to find any data to put around anecdotally what I was experiencing and what other journalists and um, we what we were seeing online. I started to reach out to some cybersecurity groups and what was actually happening here. Was there anyone that was trying to educate either in the public or in schools also a little bit about Facebook? Because we do have to remember that it's only recently really come into Myanmar. So there's a lack of education in general around internet literacy. So I started speaking to Raymond Serato 
following him on Twitter. I noticed that he was uh, a data scientist. He was following a lot of the Buddhist groups that were aligned with a nationalist group called Mabatha, and they are infamous for very sharp attacks on the Rohingya, um, and they often uh, have posted a share a lot of fake news and also not only put down and voice discrimination against the Rohingya, but they also try and organize different rallies and whatnot. So they're a very powerful group. What was really interesting chatting to Raymond Serato was he was able to put anecdotally into figures this massive increase in posts that we saw. So in some of these Facebook groups of the right-wing nationalist groups, what we saw was suddenly a massive surge in both posts and sharing of posts and interaction. So he monitored about 15,000 Facebook posts since June. So that was well before the attacks actually happened in Rakhine State. And he followed it right up until the big attacks in August and then afterwards. And he noticed a spike around the 24th and 25th of August of around 200% in these groups. So that's massive. And this is when it starts to get interesting because we think if there was this clear evidence that was starting to come out then and it's now come out um, holistically over a large time frame, what was Facebook's response if these posts were being alerted to them? Do you think that there was an actual correlation between the hate posts that were going out and the violence that was happening on the streets of Myanmar? Yeah, so it was happening clearly at the same time. You didn't have it in the streets necessarily. It wasn't something like what we might have seen overseas um, in Sri Lanka, for example. But in Rakhine State, for sure, it was definitely fueling the fire there because you did have some local groups also uh, helping the clearance groups, allegedly, that were also um, taking attacks on the Rohingya. So there's not necessarily a direct this post and then this was the reaction on the streets, but it was more what we were seeing online. It was a really clear indication that at this particular time, 24th and 25th of August, when we saw the attacks, there's really clear data that also point to what was happening online with the hate speech. So to kind of get some context, I wanted to ask you what the climate is there for press freedom and how easy it is to be a journalist in Myanmar. Press freedom in Myanmar is really under threat. We were hoping that the new government would be a little bit more responsive to working with journalists and speaking uh, to media regularly. But the state councillor, Aung San Suu Kyi, has only held one press conference. And instead, most of the information that comes from the government is actually through the state councillor's Facebook page. In terms of journalists doing their job, there's a lot of restrictions around which areas you can and cannot go to. And with the Rohingya crisis, it's currently a blackout area. So journalists can't visit northern Rakhine, which is where the Rohingya have fled from since the August attacks last year into Bangladesh. So really, it's a tough time here for both local and international journalists. So I guess my question for the panel is, is this an inevitable part of what comes with Facebook? We have a social media platform. It is a platform where people can speak freely. Should we just expect that hate speech emerges? Margaret, what do you think? Um, Look, I think the core issue here is that these companies, uh, social media companies, have been defining themselves as technology companies whereas in fact they are publishers. Well, they're both really, they're technology companies and publishers, and they've been reluctant to accept the responsibilities that come with publishing. They've been wanting the freedoms, but not the responsibilities that come with being a publisher. 
um, I think really we've got to um, upgrade both our ethical understandings and probably also international regulation around publishing um, in this day and age. Uh, so, for example, sort of algorithms that Facebook uses to serve up content to people are completely opaque. They're commercial incompetent secrets. Um, I think really we need to start uh, demanding a bit more transparency around what they do and how they do it. But these, these types of... Sorry, Benedict, you look like you wanted to jump in there. I was going to say, I, I, I think Margaret's right. If there's an opaqueness around what these algorithms are, then sure, some transparency would be, be great. I mean, I'm sure at Facebook HQ, they're you know appalled at if their platform's being used um, to spread um, hate in this way. And I'm, from a corporate responsibility point of view, it's brought some very negative um, uh, coverage uh, for Facebook I do think it's it's tricky, um, like blaming Mark Zuckerberg personally for um, someone doing a hate-filled post in Myanmar is a little bit like blaming a paper mill owner for somebody printing a leaflet on the other side of the world. Sure, they've used their platform, but how how much control do they have over that platform? And you know how how do you regulate billions of posts um, every single day? And and is there a foolproof way of doing that where you don't don't uh, stop an awful lot of very valid posts getting through. How do we regulate what's happening in private groups, though? Because I think a lot of the hate speech, hate speech that did occur in this situation with Myanmar were in these um, very ultra-right-wing private groups where people were having discussions amongst themselves. So is this something that we should be regulating, and is it not the same thing as going into someone's house and saying what you can and can't say, Max? Well, from a technical standpoint, there's no difference. I mean, as has been identified, the big issue is figuring out generally of all the information and data and speech that is put out on Facebook. How does Facebook identify which of that is dangerous, which is possibly dangerous but still permissible, and, and that kind of thing? But if we're talking about private groups on Facebook, I mean, Facebook knows what you type into your... Uh, if you type a sentence onto Facebook and then you think, no, no, that's a bit irresponsible, I'll delete it, and you don't publish it, Facebook has that data. They know what you typed. They collect a huge amount of information about all of us. Um, so it's not. there's no technical issue here. Um, the problem is obviously where do we draw the line. This is particularly difficult in a country like Myanmar, I think, where there is really a lack of opportunities for speech, for free speech, for media. Um, just to, to sort of put the other side of this, I did a story last year talking to Rohingya refugees in Sydney, and they've been communicating with their relatives in Myanmar and in Bangladesh as well, using platforms, including Facebook, but also messengers like WhatsApp. And they were receiving real-time updates of what was happening in the villages they had fled from. They were receiving videos, which they said were evidence of you know, war crimes or crimes against humanity, at least. Um, so, you know, that technology, that speech was also enabling people to document what's happening, to use media to their advantage. The problem is, of course, in my mind, generally, is you have a, a restrictive and fairly, still fairly authoritarian government and a lack of uh, free newspapers and free media and also civil society. So there's a, it's particularly difficult in a country like that to get the balance right, I'd say. So does this come back to what Facebook should be respons responsible for? And should we then be saying that Facebook should be monitoring these things, acknowledging, yes, there's a human rights crisis and looking 
to intervene in these types of situations? I think generally I would say that Facebook has a huge moral obligation to... I mean, Facebook's monitoring all this stuff for its own benefit to collect all that data, to sell that data sometimes to very unscrupulous companies, um, and then to profit from it. They profit from all the speech. The more people post on Facebook, the more they use Facebook, the more Facebook profits, um, and also the more they know about us. So I think that the ethical question is very simple. Facebook has an obligation to make sure that violence is not occurring as a result of what's happening on its platform. The practical question, of course, is how do you do that without shutting down legitimate free speech or difficult speech that, for example, the government of Myanmar not, might not want to hear, but that might be useful, productive, helpful. Yeah, and I, I think you know one of the interesting things is uh, in Germany they've got some much stronger laws when it comes around to hate speech recently, and um, Facebook has apparently got, I was reading, 1,200 moderators in um, some very kind of... Um, nasty sounding deletion centers uh, um deleting posts in germany which uh contravene local laws but um they've been accused there of of deleting of erring on the side of caution so much they're deleting um things that would never have fallen foul of of german um anti-hate laws and germany has some of the strongest anti-hate laws in the world so we're we're talking about a system where Facebook would have to be working within the context, not only politically and socially, what's happening on the ground to monitor what types of hate speech could be happening, or what type of hateful activity could be happening, but then working in a way that would, the law would decide is is or isn't free speech. Mm. Margaret, do you think that's possible? Look, I do think it's possible. Um, I think it's difficult. And of course, it would take an international lawmaking effort. Um, here in Australia, we've got a current inquiry going on into the impact of social media platforms on a range of things, including journalism and, and the media's right to publish. Um, I do think transparency is a huge part of this. It's not so much that we can restrict um, or that we should restrict freedom of speech, but I think we do need to know a lot more about how that speech is disseminated. Um, because at the moment, uh, Facebook is entirely in, in control of what people in Myanmar are likely to see online. I mean, I've been to Myanmar and Facebook is huge there. People regard it as the Internet. They really don't make much distinction between Facebook and the Internet as a whole. Um, it's an enormously influential medium there. And I think really we need to know more. I think that will take, in the long run, an international lawmaking effort of a, an equivalent sort of scale to that which was involved in bringing copyright laws a couple of centuries ago. Um, it's huge and it's difficult, but I think in the long run it's essential. And not only for Facebook. Uh, pretty soon we'll see WeChat, the Chinese social media engine, launch in the West, and I'm sure we'd all like a bit of transparency about how the Chinese are using that. Well, that's why this gets quite interesting, though, because when do we draw the line between intervening in a social um, human rights context and when we start to act in a way that's political, trying to say that the Chinese people should or shouldn't be able to communicate in a way that we perceive as being um, democratic or in line with our ideals and our world views? Is well, there I a chance? Sh- I think we should be allowing. You know, I'm all in favour of freedom of speech. I. I tend to think the freedom of speech is uh, is nearly always good um, but I do think that there needs to be transparency about how the speech is spread and that's the problem at the moment. These big commercial organisations are in control of what we see and what we say and how we say it and I think we need to demand some transparency and some consistency around that. You're listening to Fourth Estate. 
You're with me, Nina Kopel. I'm speaking to Max Chalmers, freelance journalist with Crikey and the ABC, Benedict Brook, national reporter for news.com.au. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Margaret Simons, associate professor in journalism at Monash University. Now for an issue a little bit closer to home. Last week, former Australian cricket captain Steve Smith gave a press conference where he said the ball-tempering incident was a failure of his leadership. Despite Cricket Australia's attempt to deliver an apologetic message, the headlines over the weekend took a slightly different tone. The story became about KISS 106.5 producer Peter Deppler, more commonly known as Intern Pete. He put this question to the former captain. Hold your head high for a little bit for what you have done, because what, what's actually been worse is what Davina and D- Dean did on Married at First Sight. You. you know what I mean? Like that's okay. This attracted outrage across the media, including 2GB and Pedestrian TV. Was this just a media stunt to get Kiss some publicity over the weekend, Benedict? I was in the room where, um, uh, yeah, Steve Smith was uh, somewhat upstaged by um, so-called intern Pete, and I can tell you it was not a uh, pleasant atmosphere for for him to be in. Um, I mean, it was it was very strange because. No one expected Steve Smith to have quite the level of emotion that was going on there, and everybody suspected that very quickly he was going to be pulled out of that room. So people wanted to get their questions in as fast as they could. Um, And I think more than anything, it was the kind of sucking up the time by this guy doing this this, um, statement. Um, uh, I've I've barely seen a more ropeable set of of people... Um, but but I would say, I don't think, I mean, it, it became, I would say, the number two story. The number one story really was um, just the kind of melee that was going on and, and you know, Steve Smith's face, really. Um, but everyone loves, a, you know, an, another angle to the story. And, and he put himself in that position and he became that angle. Well, let's take a step back and look at some of the emotions that were coming out and some of the reporting that happened, you know, about his face, which was the other story. Max, why do you think this was such a big story for Australia last week and the week before? Sorry, the the whole story? The whole cricket story, the cricket story, the emotions behind it. Look, it has, you know, uh, we're just next to UTS. I remember being in classes here and being taught about the news values, you know, celebrity and sport together in one story. I mean, that's that's the honest truth of it. Um, The people in these stories are both sports stars and huge celebrities um, and millionaires for that matter. So that combination, I mean, people are just fascinated in any detail they can get about the lives of these people, they always are. And then added to that, you know, the Australian national cricket team is, for better or for worse, a kind of national symbol, and people feel that it does represent us in a way. And people are very disappointed in institutions at the moment, whether it's government or or whatever else, or the corporate world, or Facebook, or, you know, people are kind of anxious at the moment. And I spoke to people this week who were sort of saying, you know, this is one other national institution that now suddenly this word cheating comes up, and, you know, people feel more hurt, maybe more let down than they would normally about another sports story because they feel this is representing us to the world. I think for my part, it's not really out of keeping with the practices of the Australian cricket team, Um, maybe not ball tampering particularly, but when I was growing up, they were a a dominant team who were never really liked by anyone else and sort of, I think, seen as bullies and it's a little bit unentertaining because they just won all the time. Um, But yeah, I think that there is a sense of personal hurt that people take from this and and that's part of it. and then when you add in that celebrity element, you know, everyone's in for the show. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the whole intern Pete thing, which has kind of got a life of it, its own, and um, there's been several articles on it. One, you know, look, you know, I don't have a huge amount of... Um, don't listen to Carl and Jackie myself, but um, 
Um, apparently, he's been getting death threats now um, about what he said at the press conference. So I think um, Carl Sanderlands was was like he he had a similar disposition. Was that everyone take a chill pill now? I mean, it it everyone may have been taking the cricket a bit too um, seriously. And and I done, I don't agree with many things that Carl Sanderlands says, but but it it was a stunt. Um, it was done on a, at a sporting press conference. I mean, you know, move on. I have a question for you, though, which is something that he said, which was basically mm. um, people care more about Married at First Sight than the cricket. Um, and I want to ask you if you think that's true. And I don't know. I was going to look at the top stories for um, news.com that I used today, <laughs> and I kind of I forgot. But I think the top one was something to do with – it was a celebrity. I don't remember which one. Do you know? Um, I think the top Chine story. Tatum, maybe I don't know. Well, the top story today was was that was actually the um, YouTube shooting. Oh, but, yeah, um, um, but no, it's, it's a very interesting question you ask because I think the um, it's uh, undoubtedly maths has been has been huge, um, and I think and um, as as the cricket and that story was this kind of love child of the two that came together and it, and it's interesting that in the last two weeks that's where Australia has been in terms of fascination is a reality TV series and the true life drama of the uh, unfolding emotions of the Australian cricket team. There you go. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Copel, and I'm speaking to Max Chalmers, freelance journalist with Crikey and the ABC, Benedict Brook, national reporter for news.com.au, and joining us on the line from Melbourne is Margaret Simons, associate professor in journalism at Monash, Monash University. And on to another sports-related story. Over the weekend, Channel 9 broadcast footage of the opening ceremony dress rehearsal for the Commonwealth Games, which started this week on the Gold Coast. This seems like something normal for an Australian broadcaster to do, broadcast an event of interest to its audience. So why is this making news? Well, it actually breached news access rules, and Nine Network has had their accreditation suspended pending review. Um, Benedict, can you help me explain why this is? Why can journalists not necessarily broadcast everything from the Commonwealth Games opening ceremony or dress rehearsal? Because somebody else paid vast amounts of money to broadcast everything from uh, from the Commonwealth Games. Um, I was looking, reading up today on what these news access rules are, and one of the rules uh, was that accredited um, stations that weren't the sponsors, so people other than Channel 7, weren't allowed to broadcast anything from the athletes' press conferences for 30 minutes after those press conferences have taken place. And that appeared to be a line that a lot of um, uh, uh, certainly print um, publications weren't prepared to do. My understanding is that both Fairfax and News Corporation decided that they would simply not be accredited and simply not have accreditation for the Commonwealth Games, which means they would be um, not have access to those press conferences at all. But it would mean that if they could find out what the information was, which they undoubtedly will, then they can broadcast it immediately. So they've kind of found a way around um, these rules. But I think it's more difficult for people like Channel 9 because they rely so heavily on the visuals, so they need to have access to those. Well, it's interesting to me that we're still in this day and age talking about the media relying on sport. Margaret, do you think that our media in Australia could function in the same way if we didn't have this huge type of money in sport? Well, sport and broadcasting is always attracting huge money that's not um, exclusive to Australia. But it's more important now than it ever was probably because the number of occasions in which 
the family gathers around the TV set, if you like, or if a, a large audience assembles at a particular time and place. You know, there aren't many occasions like that anymore. It used to be the evening news, but these days, who waits till six o'clock to watch the evening news? Um, sports and sports rights are one of the few occasions on which people can still control the assembling of the audience, and that means they're worth an enormous amount of money. Um, and that's really what this is all about. It's about money. Is it an antiquated idea that we can control what type of footage is exiting from sports events like the Commonwealth Games? Max, aren't you know everyone? Uh, isn't everyone going to go into these games with their phones recording everything and releasing it to the world anyway? It does seem increasingly redundant. I mean, I didn't know about that waiting for the press conference. That's just bizarre. I mean, I don't understand how that could ever be instituted. It's complete waste of time. As with anything, the best stories that will come... I mean, it's a little bit different with an event like this, but the best stories will always be the ones that, you know, the Games Authority didn't want to get out anyway. Um, the, the story about who run, won the race, you know... To me, I've never worked with a sort of really big or, or corporate entity much before, so I've never had to worry about being in the press conference and getting that story out first. I'm sure to the people there, that's extremely frustrating. But um, the best stories are always going to be the ones that journalists get on their own, um, that they get around the authorities, not through them. Um, so this whole thing is just sort of seems a little bit hilarious to me. Um, but it, it does... I mean, one interesting thing that's happening sort of parallel to this is that obviously sporting bodies have huge power over media access and media access, particularly in sports, you know, as we've seen with the Cricket Australia story this week, journalists who could get access were in an incredible position to really break what became pretty significant news and also just get, you know, general scoops that bring people to the website or whatever. But the other thing is that a lot of these sporting bodies are now taking matters into their own hands and producing a lot more of their own media and kind of cutting out the middleman. Um, I think Cricket Australia has their own website. They post articles on it that read like news news articles. So you're sort of seeing this other thing, which I think is probably more alarming, which is that the bodies sort of pseudo covering themselves, a job they'll obviously never do very, um, very openly the way the journalist would. I was um, speaking to a colleague today um, and they were saying, look, if an Australian wins the Commonwealth Games, it'll be live on the TV. So they'll see it anyway. And if someone breaks their leg, um, which could be an even bigger story, it'll be on Twitter. You know, so, and I think the interesting thing about, um, like you were saying, that sometimes the biggest stories aren't necessarily going to be the traditional ones of who's who's won the race. Um, if you look at go back and look at intern Pete, that became a huge story, and that was really nothing to do with the ball tampering scandal. So there is a real appetite for people to um, to see the stories around the story. Do you think that we're going into a world where maybe sport will become its own platform? Like, will Cricket Australia ever have enough power to broadcast itself without needing the media? Well, one thing that I was just thinking about on the way here is that the sports uh, the sports bodies do still need the media in a way that a lot of people, for instance, a politician maybe doesn't, and that's because they sell the sporting rights. That money is hugely important to funding the sports, and it's hard to imagine that going anyway soon. So they're kind of codependent on the media in the way that a politician now might not be. So I think that the the relationship will stay sort of fruitful for both sides for a while. But if that did change, I mean, it would be, you know, the sporting bodies could produce their own newspapers in a way that newspapers can't afford to anymore. So I don't see why they couldn't just take it, you know, hitch their own bandwagon and go off on their own. But um, I was uh, I was watching uh, today, this morning, Channel 9, and um, clearly, like, firstly, Channel 9 believe that by tomorrow morning they will have their accreditation back. 
Um, and secondly, they were their show was today was live from the Gold Coast, and it was one of those interesting things you get at these big sporting events. They're not a sponsor, but they kind of do everything apart from say they're a sponsor. So they were on the beach. They had all this vision of the Gold Coast. If you just tuned in for a couple of minutes, you could have thought that Channel Nine were the official broadcaster. Margaret, anything to add about the future? What might what might be coming in the realm of media and sport? Oh, look, I do think a lot of institutions are looking at whether they can actually do what the media has traditionally done. I mean, here in Melbourne, we've seen the AFL open up its own newsroom, for example, and try and report on itself. Um, but, yeah, I, while they might get information out, I don't think they can ever really replace the media. I mean, you wouldn't expect the AFL to break the Essendon drug scandal story, for example. Um but, yeah, I mean, the, the potential now is for anybody to publish or to broadcast, including the sporting codes themselves. And if they can make money out of it, I'm sure they'll consider it. Thank you. And that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Max Chalmers, Benedict Brook and Margaret Simons. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so you'll never miss an episode. If you're already a subscriber, you can leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook or just recommend the show to a friend. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Nina Kopel. Peter Frey will be back next week to bring you more Fourth Estate. Until next time. Thank you.